Blog Talk Radio.
um, destroy the planet that is your only home. It's also completely immoral. It is um, <clears throat> problematical on a number of levels, once again, one of which is that, that there's this somehow there's this ridiculous notion that somehow you can uh, destroy a planet and live on it too. Um, so how does it... Um, and your, your second part was how does it... How, what was the question? Oh, well, um, what mainly is how are people wrapped up in believing in civilization is good? Well, there's, there's a, a, a few ways, and one of them is that um, there's this great line that this guy, Robert Coombs, I believe it was, said, which is unquestioned beliefs are the real authorities of any culture. And um, we can see how these... Um, and what, what he means by that is that, or what I take from that, is that if you, well, let me put it this way. There's another way to say this is that the first rule of propaganda is if you can slide your premises by people, you've got them. And so we can hear people on television saying, gosh, how can we make the U.S. economy grow? And there's a bunch of premises inherent in that. And it's the same with these unquestioned assumptions. Um, I was just reading um, this uh, um, speech that Noam Chomsky gave back of four years ago, and one of the things he's saying is that um, that well, I should see if I can find the quote. Now I'll just I'll just paraphrase it. Basically, he was saying that unless we live this way of life, other ways of life. Now this is important enough that I'm gonna I'm gonna grab the quote. It's um, and, and the, the, the point here is not Chomsky. Well, actually, the point is a little bit Chomsky, but Chomsky is, is completely brilliant, and he has done this wonderful, wonderful job of deconstructing U.S. empire and helping us to understand that the United States is an empire. And then that's the problem, is that when even people who understand that, who understand that it's wrong to steal from other humans will uh, suddenly forget that when it comes to uh, either stealing from indigenous humans who somehow don't count or from... Uh, okay, he says basically that if... Um, if basically without living in this culture... Maybe some humans will survive, but it will be scattered in nothing like a decent existence. And it's like, really? So the Talua Indians lived where I live now for at least 12,500 years, and they did so sustainably. That when, the, when members of the dominant culture got here a couple hundred years ago, the place was a paradise, and now the place is really trashed. And that... Um, so one of the ways that this, that this way of life insinuates itself into our lives is through these unquestioned assumptions, um, through um, the presumption that uh, the indigenous humans who have lived and who continue to live around the world aren't living lives that are decent or worth living, and that what makes life worthwhile. Or after, after Fukushima... There was a um, one of the people, one of the ministers for energy in Japan said that 
um, the reason that they need nuclear power in Japan is because we can't imagine living without electricity. And that's an extraordinary statement because so many people would believe it. You know, at this point, you know, gosh, I can't imagine living without the Internet, you know. I can't imagine living without TV. I can't imagine living without electricity. Um, and the truth is that right now there are 2 billion humans on the planet who are living without electricity. And they're doing, they're, they're surviving. They're doing okay. And, in fact, up to 100 years ago, 100 and, yeah, 100 years ago, everybody on the planet lived, all the humans on the planet lived without industrial generated electricity. And so there's two points I want to make. One of them is that he said we can't imagine living without electricity. He said, I don't think anyone can imagine living without electricity. A couple points. One of them is, um, you'll note that he said that I can't, you know, that, that nobody can imagine living without electricity, but he didn't say nobody can imagine living without polar bears. Nobody can imagine living without coral reefs. Nobody can imagine living without living oceans. Nobody can imagine living without a real world, without drinkable water, without breathable air. And... This is a real fundamental insanity. Another way to put all this is that all the so-called solutions that we hear to global warming, they all take industrial capitalism as a given. And none of them take the real world as a given and industrial capitalism or any way of living that, as, as, as having to conform to the real world. They all try to make it so the real world will conform to industrial capitalism. And that's just insane. And Here's another example of these unquestioned assumptions. Um, I love this line by Richard Dawkins. I, I really can't stand Richard Dawkins. There's this, this great line by him where he says, Science bases its claims to truth on its spectacular ability to make matter and energy jump through hoops on command. Science bases its claims to truth on its spectacular ability to make matter and energy jump through hoops on command. And at first glance, that seems really right. I mean, it's true that the reason we know that science works is because when we flip on a switch, then the electricity comes on. And what do you know? All the engineering all through the process works. And But there's a problem here, and the problem is that well, there are a few problems. One is it presumes that the real world is not volitional, that the real world has no volition, that it's only humans who have volition, and it's we are acting upon them. We're making matter and energy as opposed to mice, salmon, rivers. And another problem with this is that it's very sneaky. What it's done is it has insinuated domination and slavery into our very definition, our epistemology, our definition of how we know something is true. We know something is true because we can make matter and energy jump troops on command, and we can predict what will happen and when. This is the next line. But let's say that you and I are in the same room, and let's say I put a gun on you, and I point a gun at you, and I say, okay, i got a hoop here, on the count of three, you're going to jump through this hoop or I'm going to shoot you. And then on the count of three, you jump through the hoop. What do you know? I'm a genius. I made matter and energy jump through hoops on command, and I predicted what would happen and when. But don't you think I've destroyed the possibility of relationship? Don't you think that if I hold a gun on you and I force you to jump through a hoop on command, you might not want to be my friend? And so my point is that this is there are a ton of assumptions contained in so many of the statements that that we make every day and these that's one of the ways that that we get tied in and another way we get tied in is what lewis mumford called the magnificent bribe which is the system 
the system is authoritarian, and it, uh, he had this great essay called Democratic and Authoritarian Technics. An authoritarian technic is one that, there's, there's two reasons it's called authoritarian. One of them is because it is, oh, I'll back up, a technic is the social system that surrounds the technology. So cars are not just a technology, but there is a cer- it takes a certain social mindset to give rise to them, and once they're here, then they create certain social mindsets as well. So, for example, cars, once again, they change how you perceive the world. And a technic can be authoritarian or democratic, and, and there's, there's two parts to this. One of them is that can you make it on your own, or does it require a large social structure? So a great example of this is passive solar versus solar photovoltaics. Passive solar, anyone can sit in the sun. Anyone can arrange their living space for the sun, and that no one can control you with it. On the other hand, a solar photovoltaic requires mining, it requ- which means it requires the whole infrastructure to surround it. It requires, it requires the energy infrastructure. It's like people say, oh, cities can be sustainable. We just change them. It's like, okay, great. Where do you get your copper? Okay, you get your copper from a mine. Okay, mines are inherently destructive. What happens if there are people living near this mine who live on a river, which is now going to be polluted by the mine, and what if they don't want to give up their way of living that's been there forever? Well, they're going to get kicked out. So even something as groovy as a solar photovoltaic or a windmill or whatever, they require um, the entire system, the entire electrical infrastructure system, they require a mining infrastructure, a transportation infrastructure system, and then they make you think in certain ways such that you can start thinking. Well, there's a second part. So the first part is can you – is does the technology and the social system that surrounds it lead to distant social structures? Nuclear power obviously requires a huge social structure to surround it. And then it leads to certain behavior, too. Um, and a great example of that is, is industrial agriculture. Industrial agriculture, um, what it involves is plowing a field, and the plow is, is a great example of a, of a non-democratic technique because of an authoritarian technique, because what you're doing is you plow a field and then you raise food with that, and what you're doing is you're destroying the land base as you do it. What that does is if, as you destroy your land base, this means you have to conquer other places. And this is true not just for agriculture, but anything that's not sustainable. Mining, a great example, too. Mining is inherently an authoritarian social structure because nobody in their right mind wants to work in a mine. Mining and agriculture were really two of the first places that humans had slaves. And um, and now the second reason that a, a, a technic can be called authoritarian is because it actually becomes a, the ruler of the society, so that it is more important than um, actual living conditions. And a great example of that is the economy. You know, we always hear it's the economy versus the environment. Well, the economy is not a real thing. You know, it's not actually. It's a technic. Um, or people make decisions for money. And money is, you know, you could argue that money is just a medium for barter, um, which is not actually accurate, but we'll just go with that for a second. But it doesn't matter because people end up making decisions. We live in a capitalist society. We need to have money to pay rent, which means that the whole system of money has taken over and become more important than the community. It's actually running. Or corporations are a great example. Corporations are 
simply tools of organization. But the corporations have are running society, the tools, literally the tools of running society. So that's why it becomes authoritarian. And Lewis Mumford asked, so why is it that people have given up their autonomy to these, to these authoritarian structures? And part of the answer is that um, they, is what he calls the magnificent bribe. And what he means by that is that the system promises to give you whatever it can manufacture in amounts that are that would have been inconceivable to even the most despotic rulers 50 years ago or 500 years ago. It gives you that as long as you will accept the deal. That is, you can have whatever the system makes in the quantities that it wants to give you as long as you don't ask for anything else, like a living planet, like a living community. Right. And so we bought into that bribe. I mean, the short version of this is, you know, we're bought off that we're exchanging a living planet for really cool computer games and access to ice cream 24-7. <laughs> and I hate to be that cynical, but that's, in a lot of ways, what it boils down to. Right. It's kind of like um, it's ideas built off ideas, off the wrong ideas in the first place, like a foundation that's wrong and like a high-rise yep. built on top. It's just like, it's just like, oh, then we can do this. And then, and then the next story, higher, oh, and we can do this off this. But they never thought in the first place where they were going, and it just, it just got out of control. Um, well, you know, yeah. and, right. Yeah, and it, well, and it just I, I continues to build up. I want to add one more, one more thing to this. It's not merely that we get bribed, because that puts actually too much responsibility on us. That's part of it's true. But in addition, we, um, those in charge have been very clear from the beginning that if they can control your access to food, they can control your lives. And so it's not simply that we get bribed. Yeah, it's nice that we get the ice cream, we get the cool computer games and whatever else, and we get telephones and all that. That's nice, but that's not the real point. The real point, there was this letter from this 1830s abolitionist, I'm sorry, um, pro-slavery philosopher to his northern abolitionist buddy. He was also a capitalist. They're both capitalists. And the pro-slavery philosopher said, you know, it's really simple. There are some conditions in which it's in the capitalist's best interest to own slaves, and some conditions in which it's in the capitalist's best interest not to own slaves. And it's really simple. If you have a lot of land and not many people, then people have access to land, which means they have access to food, clothing, and shelter, which means they have access to self-sufficiency, which means they are not going to go to work for you unless at the point of a gun, in which case you need to own them. If, on the other hand, you can control their access to food, like if there's a lot of people and not much land, then that means they don't have access to food to, to land, which means they don't have access to food, clothing, and shelter, which means they don't have access to self-sufficiency, which means that um, they have to go to work for you. There's not much choice. Because right now, you and I can have all the conversations we want about how great it would be to live differently, but the truth is we still got to pay rent. And even if we don't, you know, even if we're going to be squatters or something, that actually does not help the planet at all. It may, It may make it so... You know, you or I can feel groovy about ourselves, but it doesn't stop the system. The system is still working. All you're doing then is sort of parasitizing off the system. It doesn't actually harm the system. And back to the original point, it's not just that we bought into the system, but in addition, it's the system 
intentionally distances us from the real world, both in both psychologically and physically, and forces us into the wage economy. The laws of apartheid, I didn't know this until I wrote Culture of Make-Believe and was doing the research on this, that the laws of apartheid weren't just just put in by these nasty racists. They were put in, yes, by nasty racists, but they were also put in specifically and explicitly because they needed people to work in the mines. And the, the local people did not want to work in the mines, and so what they started doing is creating hut taxes, poll taxes, dog taxes, so that if you had a hut, you had to pay a tax. And if you had a dog, you had to pay a tax. And if you were alive, you had to pay a tax. But the people were not working in a money economy. They were working in subsistence economies. They were, you know, just eating eating food from the ground and, and you know, both, both plant and animal food from the ground. And they were perfectly content doing so. And perfectly content people are not going to go work in the mines. So what are you going to do? Well, if you're in power and if you have the entire military police system behind you, what you can do is pass a bunch of laws that make it so people have to have money. They've got to pay taxes. How are they going to pay taxes? They've got to get a job. And so apartheid was really set up not just by white people to spite you know, the, the people who lived in Africa, the, the Africans, not just to spite them and not just to show their inferior. Well, that's part of it. It was also set up because they needed a workforce. And so I don't want to blame and say that the people in Africa um, bought into this magnificent bribe. They were forced into the system. And then what happens is once you're forced into the system for a couple generations, you know, you can start thinking, okay, you know, you can forget that you had this other way to live, and you can start to buy into Mumford's magnificent bribe. Right. Because we're born into captivity down the generations, and we don't see the slavery around us. We don't see the, the bars. It's the prison without the bars because they offer even rewards. Yeah, and, I always and where do you that, live? Where yeah, do you live? What's that? What, I'm in Hawaii. Hawaii. I'm in Hawaii. And um, are, do you live in a city or do you live out in the country? I live in a city. Okay. Yeah, I would like my, to not, my, but, you know. Yeah. Well, my point in bringing this up is that we, you know, it's the same deal. But 100 years ago, Hawaii was this complete paradise prior to the arrival of Europeans in terms of a natural, in terms of the natural world. And the, it was still, we, we forget. There's this thing called declining baselines, which is, I mean, you're born into this prison. You're born into this impoverished world. And... We're still happy with whatever natural beings we still see, even though, you know, three generations ago, you would have seen 50 times as much wildlife. And so we forget over time. It's like a bad relationship, you know. You can be in a relationship and somebody does something, you just find, oh, my God, this is so appalling. And then... If you stay in that relationship, over time you can get used to it. I keep thinking of this. Um, the title of one of the Doobie Brothers albums was um, uh, "Once Were What Once." How's it go? Um, something about what once were vices are now habits, and right. it's the same sort of deal that you can get. Just like you can get accustomed to. I can no longer imagine living without electricity. Likewise, I can no longer imagine what it was like to live here. Um, 
300 years ago where you would see a grizzly bear every 15 minutes if you were by a river. You know, I can't imagine that. Um, and I can't imagine, you know, the sky full of birds. Um, in the last year, there's been a collapse of starfish in along the Pacific coast of the United States, and 99% collapse. And so, you know, I was here. I, I live on the coast, and I was... You know, I saw the starfish five years ago, and now if someone is seven, and, this, and if the starfish don't come back, which nobody knows that they will, but if the starfish don't come back, you know, children who are born now will never know what it's like to see rocks covered with starfish, and they, won't, they will just accept this is what normal is. You know, uh, 200 years ago, the Klamath River was, quote, um, black and roiling with salmon. And now when I see just a couple salmon spawning, I get really excited, a couple, you know? as opposed to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of them, enough to turn an entire river black. Right. So we get used to it. We increasingly get used to it. The best line I wrote in my 20s was I lived in this house, and a previous owner had, had a cat that used to poop in the basement, and the basement was dirt, with, and it pooped right near the air intakes for the furnace, and so the house smelled like cat poop. And I wrote this line to a friend of mine saying, um, at first the stench really got to me, but then just like with everything else, you get used to the smell. And <laughs> I think about that. I mean, you see the metaphor, right? Yeah. Yep. Exactly. I do, and I, 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 see, that, um, I see that with even modern technology and um, I am the last show I was covering a little bit about kids these days. They don't think twice about retina scanning and fingerprint scanning when um, generations ago we didn't have that. But they won't question because it's just part of the norm in the, this day and age. And it's sort of the same same kind of deal, just another another way that people just get used to it. And even even us older generations, we get used to it because that's the way things are. Like cell phones. I remember when nobody had them except drug dealers. Now, everybody has a cell phone, and it's an inconvenience if you don't have a cell phone kind of thing. And so we get used to the, the way things are. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a natural adaptive feature in the human brain probably, but it, it doesn't question. And that's, that's the a huge issue here is we're not questioning where we're going, what we're doing. Just, right. we just, we're just doing human, human doings instead of human beings. And I, yeah, I would say you know, that the greatest conspiracy that ever happened is getting us off the land and getting us to survive off the system. I mean, that's the biggest conspiracy that ever happened on Earth. Well, and it's um, it's been pretty successful because people yeah. um, can't imagine living. I mean, here's part of the deal, too, is once they make you dependent upon the system, this is, and this is also a classic thing, you know, you used the word conspiracy, and I was, for a second I bridled at that, thinking, oh, it's not a conspiracy, because like my friend says, it's not a conspiracy and everybody thinks the same. But on the other hand, it has been intentional. So we could, we could I'm not arguing with you about the word conspiracy, I'm just sort of riffing off of it, R-I-F-F. Right, right. That, um, you know, on one hand, it, it's, I don't think it is a conspiracy, because it's not like four people sitting in a room going, ha, 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 how can we do this? But on the other hand, right. it is a group of people who have made conscious decisions and I think about this with abusers, that 
um, you know, one of the first things that abusers have to do, and they do this consistently in some sort of um, relationship where they're going to, you know, beat their girlfriend or wife or whatever, one of the first things they do is they start breaking off people's contact with their social system. And you do that because you, you need to make it so people don't have options to get away from you. And also, in my mom's case and in many other cases, the first beating will happen when the woman gets pregnant or after she is pregnant so that she is now dependent. She can't leave. You know, she was, she was still a free agent before who could just support herself. But now that she has a kid, what is she going to do financially? It makes it much more problematical. So, and we can argue whether those are conscious intent or not conscious intent, and I have absolutely no idea. You know, I've done all these books, and I still have no idea if, you know, abusers actually believe their lies or if they're just, if they are just sitting there going, ha, ha, ha. You know, I, 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 don't, I don't know the answer to that. And, but we do have... We see this pattern where they can cut you off, and this is true on the personal level with abusive relationships, and it was true with apartheid, and it's true on a larger scale where um, one of the things I used to say at talks a lot is that if your experience is that your food comes from the grocery store and your water comes from the tap, then you will defend to the death that system that brings those to you because your life depends on it. And if, on the other hand, your food comes from a land base and your water comes from a river, then you will defend those to the death because your life depends on that. And that's, um, that's a huge transition as we've been made dependent on the system like that. And, you know, Kropotkin talked about this and talked about the importance, how many revolutions have foundered because of bread. You know, it's like we can hate the system as much as we want to, but as long as it's still supplying bread for a lot of people, you know, a lot of the people are not going to resist it because it's like my friend George Draffin always says, a lot of revolutions have not happened because of, of two simple words, which are 60 days, because in 60 days you die of starvation. <laughs> mm -hmm. So my point in bringing that up is that one of the things, you know, I get a lot of flack from some, it's pretty interesting, my relationship with permaculture people is very, very interesting because there are some permaculture people who love my work, and especially a lot of the, the elders in the movement love my work, and they love the fact that I'm bringing in resistance. And then there's a lot of people, especially people who are fairly new to permaculture, but also people whose identity is so wrapped up in the notion that gardening will actually stop this culture, who get very upset because they think, you know, oh my gosh, I'm dissing gardening or I'm dissing permaculture. And I'm not really, but the point is it's not sufficient. It's necessary but not sufficient. It's not sufficient because we need to stop those in power, but it's also necessary because, you know, 90% of any resistance movement, or 98% or whatever, is not actually militant resistance. It's support work. You know, for the United States military, they need to have a huge infrastructure to support that. And this is true for any sort of, um, any sort of movement at all. I mean, you've got the Freedom Riders. They had to be fed. You have, um, you know, we all, we all think about um, Harriet Tubman and how great she was. And she was great. I'm not saying she's not. She's, she's fabulous. Um, mm -hmm. But she couldn't have done it by herself. They had to eat on the way up. And so it also required those people who, many of them, were not willing to take the risks that she took, but they were willing to take the risk to feed her on the way. And so that's part of a necessary resistance, too, is de-linking de, de ourselves from 
our dependence on the system. And my problem with the whole sort of lifestyle thing or, the, or some of the, the permaculture people who don't want to consider resistance is that it's not sufficient to delink yourself. You've got to delink yourself so that you can resist. Mm-hmm. I agree fully. Um, you know, and that kind of brings me into a thought I had. I mean, because they've really painted us into a corner and given us, you know, a little choice. But according to, you know, nature's laws, not man's, you know, where do we differentiate between passivism and necessary violence? You know, how, how do we differentiate right from wrong in this situation? Well, I think that's a huge, huge question. And, and before we get yeah, there, I, and I'm, I'm not going to avoid it, but before we get there, I also want to say that the big distinction is not between those who believe that militant resistance is necessary and those who don't. The big distinction is always between those who do something and those who do nothing. You know, we could do this whole thing. We could, we could shut this whole system down completely nonviolently if we had the numbers and if we had people who were committed to it. And then the question just becomes a tactical one of, do we have those numbers? And um, so I, I wanted to say that first, that the, that the big thing is for people just to get off their behinds and actually do the work. And, um, okay, that's the first thing. And then the other is, you know, at this point, um, I mean, there are solid scientists who are saying that the oceans will be devoid of fish within 35 years. And I find that, I find that reality profoundly immoral. And right. I think we need to recognize that one can do an immoral and violent act by sitting on one's behind and doing nothing. That if you allow grotesquely immoral acts to happen on your watch, then you are culpable. And I think that this needs to be a part of every discussion about this. And... You know, I did an interview a couple weeks ago. I was interviewed by somebody, and we were talking about how bad things are. And one of the things that he said is that, well, you know, we can always say we fought the good fight, and it's really important to to be able to 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 just to be doing the right thing, and to be to be to be to know that you were taking the right and moral position, and. In that particular interview, I didn't. He, we went on to talk about something else, so I didn't respond to that. But I've always been very clear from the very beginning of my activist career, and it was early on in my life, that I actually don't care about fighting the good fight. That's not why I'm in this. I'm in this for one reason, one reason only, which is to make it so there's more salmon every year than the year before, and to make it so there's more migratory songbirds every year than the year before, and to make it so there's more frogs every year than the year before. I'm in this to win, and that's that's what's important to me and i don't really care about um how good i feel along the way and i don't care about doing this because it's the right thing that's a good reason to start you know it's it's better to do the right thing than to not do the right thing of course but but 
we have to ask, you know, what, uh, what, what do we want? And this is a question that I don't see enough environmentalists asking. Um, you know, and once again, I'm very clear on this, that what I want is a world with more wild salmon in it. And so then, once you get clear on that, um, I think I think the question of morality changes. And, you know, I have a big problem. There are some strains of anarchism that are um, against morality. And, I mean, they're, <laughs> yeah, they're against morality. I mean, all morality. And I think that that's... Yeah deeply immoral. I think that's completely wrong. I think just because a Christian morality is... I mean, they do recognize that morality is socially based, you know? That different cultures have different moralities. But I think there... But, but it's also very postmodern to believe that just because different cultures have different moralities, that there is no foundational morality. And... Years and years ago, gosh, this is 20-some years ago now, um, I was having dinner with this woman, and she said to me, well, we can say that rape is bad, but it's all just based on stories. You know, I, I said something about rape being bad. She said, well, no, we can't. Rape is not bad. We can just say it's bad because those are stories. And I was like, oh, my God. And then I remembered that she was dating a philosopher, so she was you know, temporarily insane. And <laughs> this is the sort of postmodern idea that everything is based on stories. But I didn't have an answer for her in the moment. I thought and thought about it, and I, the answer I came up with on morality was really, I was really helped a lot on this by Charlene Spretnak in her book, States of Grace, that one of the things that she was asked, she was, she was faced with the same sort of postmodern nonsense, and the answer she came up with is water, which is we need water to survive, and if what this means is that drinkable quantities of clean water are good, and Eat edible quantities, edible quality food is good, and breathable air is good, and anything that harms those is immoral, and what helps make those is moral. This is which basically just takes us back to all the Leopold's thing about anything that contributes. I'm going to totally butcher this. Basically, anything that contributes to the biodiversity, to, to increasing biodiversity, is good, and. <laughs> And that, so let's go back to that. Um, so your question really had to do with, um, ask me your question again. Well, I, I was just thinking, like, you know, because we've been given really little choice, and so where do we differentiate between pacifism and necessary violence, and how, how do we differentiate right from wrong um, you know, I think one of the wonderful nature's laws too. I think one of the wonderful things is about being a sentient being, by which I don't just mean humans. I believe everybody is sentient. I believe I'm sitting outside, and I believe that the alder trees are sentient, and the um, the soil is sentient, and the bacteria in the soil is sentient, and mm -hmm. um, the fruit flies here are sentient. Everybody is sentient. Um, and one of the joys of being a sentient being, and the rocks here are sentient too. Rocks everywhere are sentient. Anyway. I think that one of the joys of being a sentient being is that you get to make choices. <laughs> and um, one of the wonderful things that 
Okay, one of the problems that many indigenous people have had with the notion of writing, and there, there are some great analyses of this, Stanley Diamond did a really good analysis of it, is that basically once something gets written down, it's perceived as true. And this is a real problem with, for example, the Bible, that I love the line by Joseph Campbell where he said that a lot of people who, are, who really believe the Bible, I mean, do they go to a restaurant and they eat the menu instead of what it represents? And the point is that it's supposed to be pointing at various truths. And I, I think, frankly, in the Bible, a lot of the truths are really pathological because it's all based on patriarchy. But um, the, the point here is that um, I think it's really, I don't think, I think what, what, what is really necessary is to, okay, morality is not relative, not in terms of a relativism or not in terms of sort of postmodern, all stories are the same. But instead, this is a very important distinction, I think morality is circumstantial. I think, and one of the ways I talk about this is that, I remember I got in a big argument with a pacifist one time, and he, he couldn't understand this, but um, he said all killing is bad. And it's like, okay, you know, every time you defecate, you kill a bazillion bacteria. And I said the important question that we need to have, and the, the really important discussions that we need to have as a, as a individually and also collectively is, is to find out when we believe that, okay, my point on defecation is that no matter what you do, you're being violent. You know, I'm walking along, I'm accidentally stepping on the fruit flies when they land on the ground. I've got worm bins here, that's why I'm stepping on fruit flies, because worm bins are all over. And, you know, I just, as I was pacing around when I was talking earlier, I heard this little crunch under my feet, and I was hoping it was a little broken twig. I didn't look. I was hoping it was not a little snail. Um, anyway, the point is that... Um, we're doing acts of violence all the time. And the question is, what, what acts of violence? Because violence is just any act that harms another. And so what acts of violence do we find personally and socially acceptable? What acts of violence do we find personally and socially unacceptable? And so a great example of this, I, I was trying to argue with the pacifist who, who couldn't grok this, was that most of us consider it acceptable under most circumstances to do an act of violence to a carrot. You'd agree with that, right? That under most circumstances, right. it's acceptable right. to eat a carrot. And we would find that socially acceptable. Um, on the other hand, most of us, under most circumstances, find it morally unacceptable to, kill a, to, do an, to do an act of violence to a human being under most circumstances, right? Right. Yeah. So my question is, like, where do we draw that line, and why do we draw it there, and how do we draw it there? So... I mean, I differ from a lot of liberals in that I actually don't have a problem with the death penalty as such. I think there are things that humans can do that cause them to forfeit the right to live. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, there are plenty of people on death row for raping and murdering, you know, two-year-old children. And great, I got no problem. I don't care who kills them. I don't care if the state kills them. I don't care if their relatives kill them. I don't care who does it. I think, that's, I think if you rape and murder a child, you're done. And, right. okay, so that's how I feel. And obviously a lot of liberals would disagree with that and say that the state should never kill anybody under any circumstances. Great, let's have that discussion. And meanwhile, here's my real point, is most of us obviously find it acceptable to murder the oceans. And most of us find, us, find it acceptable to murder rivers. I just read this article just today on The Guardian. It's pissed me off. Um, they're asking there, are big dams destructive to the environment? Can you imagine they're actually asking that question? And some of the scientists who were answering were saying, no, they're not really. It's like, 
I'm sorry, you're saying humans are, are, are actually intelligent and this is what you're saying? It's crazy. How can you be so stupid as to say that, oh, and then some of them say, yes, they're really destructive, but they save millions of lives through flood control. Bingo. What that means is it is perfect. Let's presume that they're accurate. Let's presume they're telling the truth. Let's presume that's completely right, which I don't believe. Okay, it is acceptable to force indigenous people off their land and move them somewhere else where their culture is destroyed and, they're, and they die, and it's acceptable to make it so anadromous fish can't move up and down the river. It's acceptable to make it so the ocean is deprived of sediment. It's acceptable to make it so the river does not get nutrients flowing back up from anadromous fish. And that is acceptable, but it would not be acceptable to have some people die because of, because of floods. So that's great. You've made very clear what you do find and don't find acceptable morally. You see what I'm getting at? Is this is, yeah, I love exactly. the question, which I can't really answer because... Well, what I can say is, here is my basis for morality. Is the world a better place because you were born? Is the physical world a better place because you were born? That's my question. And so when it comes down to, I mean, yes, is it ever acceptable to do acts of violence? I think about George Elser, who all by himself almost stopped World War II. He was a trade unionist who did not like what Hitler was doing to the trade unions, and he sought to assassinate him. very nearly did. And... I'm not suggesting that we that we use assassination. I'm not suggesting that for here in great measure because there's not the social structure is not set up the same. That if somebody would have killed Dick Cheney, I mean the United States military would have still gone on. But everybody accepts that if Hitler would have died, World War II doesn't happen because the army was telling him, desperately begging him not to not to invade anywhere. And so my point is that. Um, we need to be having those discussions socially. And that's really why I wrote Endgame, is because I wanted to spark those discussions. One of the reasons I wrote Endgame is because I wanted to spark those discussions of when do we find it acceptable to do what? Um, and when do we not find it acceptable? And right now, clearly, it is acceptable to murder the planet. And mm-hmm. it is not acceptable to, to stop it. Awesome books, by the way. Those are, those those books changed my life. They uh, definitely helped furnish my perspective. So, just uh, oh, thank you for writing those. Those are awesome, awesome additions oh, to anybody' life. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's that's a it's a it's a loaded question, but it's something that I ponder a lot, and I I thought I'd bring it up with you just because uh, we are painted into a corner in in a lot of ways and destroying the planet. And humans are, you know, in a, increasingly enslaved themselves into this system. And there has to be a time, I believe, when it, it's like the final hour where people figure out what decision to make or, or continue on with this. And so that was kind of just my, my thoughts, like, because there's a lot of people that believe that, you know, um, there shouldn't be any violence Put out, and I don't want to see a revolution get hot and everybody, you know, shooting on each other, dying. But how do, how do you take down civilization in a way that doesn't have um, some kind of violence attached to it? Because I don't believe with the pacifist view either. So I, it's just kind of a, it's it's a tough call to well, the for problem, a lot of people. One of the problems is that there that the violence is already happening. It's just that we don't see it so much because it's not our neighbors who are dying. But the people who are dying, first off, the shark people are dying, and the, 
the swordfish people are dying and the salmon people are dying. And I just read today that the kittiwake people are dying. The kittiwakes in the North Atlantic have had 15 years of reproductive failure. I mean, that's, they're, they're going. And so there's those people. And then in addition, there are human people all over the planet. Years ago, I asked Anuradha Mittal, former director of Food First, if the people of India would be better off if the global economy disappeared. And she laughed and said, of course, poor people the world over will be better off immediately. And she talked about, I mean, there are subsistence farmers who are being driven off their land who um, who would be fine. There are former granaries of India that now export dog food and tulips to Europe. And there are people starving in India because of that export um, as people have converted the cash crops all over the world, according to the conspiracy. You know, now I'm, I'm getting convinced to use your word. You know, according to the conspiracy of the global economy, um, they've been forced into cash economies, and they're consequently starving. And um, so those people are dying. And the reason we don't know it is because we're living behind a gated community, and the gatekeeper is the U.S. military. And so there's there's that is one part of it. And another part that's really see it gets really complex and it's really difficult because. You know, I've had wonderful conversations about this with Chris Hedges, and one of his hesitations, he's all for revolution, and one of his hesitations is that he has been around war zones so much that he knows that oftentimes, like members of Hamas or members of people who are fighting the genocide in um, the Balkans or people who were fighting in Central America, he's been all those places in the war zones, and a lot of times when they're not actually doing the good fight, a lot of the soldiers can be really horrible people. <laughs> and they can, like he says, that he had friends that were, were doing resistance for that, and then they're off time, they're going and looting random houses. You know, they're just burglarizing people's homes, just not even members of the enemy, but just they're just behaving poorly. And so I think it's really, really important to... Okay, if we're going to have any sort of resistance, and this doesn't matter whether we're nonviolent, violent, anything, we have to have a strategy, and we have to have tactics to match the strategy. We have to figure out, this is a problem I have with the black bloc, and one of the problems I have with the black bloc is there is specifically and intentionally quite often no strategy, or the strategy consists of, you know, if we break a window, and I'm not making this up, this is what they say themselves, if we break a window, people will never look at property the same again. It's like, well, that's not really a very well-thought-out strategy to get from A to B. Oh. And um, so I, I don't have a problem with people organizing. I don't have a problem with militant resistance, obviously. I do have a problem with people lashing out simply in anger. I think that we need to think things through and figure out what we want to accomplish. And this is a problem. You know, I mentioned this earlier. So many environmentalists don't know what they want. And so, you know, we file our timber sale appeals. We do this, we do that. And that is better than nothing, but we don't have a larger strategy as to what we're hoping to accomplish. This is, this is another reason I wrote Endgame is because as a grassroots environmental activist and working with all the other activists, all of us were just holding on by our fingernails, hoping and praying that this piece of ground stands until the system collapses. And we're all praying for collapse. And so I started thinking, well, why don't we make the collapse occur? I mean, let's bring it, let's bring it sooner. And, you know, from a perspective that, from the world's perspective, it's like if you ask polar bears if they thought we should stop the oil economy, they would say yes. If you ask the oceans, should we stop the oil economy, they would say yes.
And if you ask um, human supremacists, they will say, oh, my God, no. If you ask those who love the system, they would say, oh, my God, no. But I think the truth is that the, the system, you know, here's part of the deal is right now, you know, every cell in my body, part of the problem is that the problems we face are not fundamentally rational because every cell in my body wants for us to have some sort of voluntary transformation where we get smart and we use energy wisely to slowly dismantle the system. But I don't see it. I don't see a prayer of it happening. Everything's going the wrong direction. And for God's sake, now they're, they're fracking everywhere. And all populations are collapsing quick, more quickly than ever. You know, when I was a child, one of my favorite sounds is meadowlarks. I love the sound of meadowlarks. And um, I don't live in the prairie anymore, so I don't hear them. I heard them often as a child. But, and they were every, every, everywhere. And just two days ago, I read, quote, meadowlark populations are in free fall. And I was like, I can't bear it. And, you know, what would meadowlarks do? If they had opposable thumbs, what would they do? If salmon had opposable thumbs and access to explosives, what would they do? You know, I think we need to think about this in terms of the real world. And, you know, I also think about Spock. You know, it's so funny that um, I did did an interview, gosh, 10 years ago or so, and the interviewers said, um, they started laughing partway through the interview because they said, you know, with what you write about, we were thinking that you were going to be like pounding the table and spitting while you talked, but you're actually a nice guy. And the thing is, the reason I want to bring down civilization is not because I'm fundamentally angry. The reason I want to bring down civilization is because I can do simple math. And one planet minus one planet equals zero. And, um, you know, I recognize that if you have six billion passenger pigeons and then four billion and then two billion and then one billion and then a half a billion and then 100,000 and then 50,000, you know, eventually there'll be none. <coughs> and I can do simple math. And everything's going the wrong direction. And it's not good enough for me to simply wring my hands and say, oh, that's too bad, isn't it? And to say, um, you know, gosh, I'm, I just, I can't, you know, I fought the good fight. That's not good enough for me at all. Um, and I think the question is, I think about this all the time. It's like, I want for people who live 100 years from now, human and non-human people, I want them to be proud of me, you know? When we look back on World War II, and we look, when we look back on Germans in World War II, you know, who are the heroes? The heroes are the ones who were part of the resistance. The heroes were the, both the members of the military who tried to fight many of them for the wrong reasons, because they were just conservative and they thought Hitler was destroying Germany. But still, they were doing the good fight. Or, and also the, the various communists and Jews who resisted, the trade unionists who resisted. Those are the heroes. And, you know, that's how... That's how, I mean, I have dignity and I have pride and I want to be perceived by those who come after as someone who did, who did the right thing and who was part of accomplishing, of saving the planet from being murdered by these sociopaths. I mean, that's the thing. Is, you know, the, the, the one thing that I really bring to the analysis that I don't think many other people do is the complete non-rationality of the murder of the planet. And a lot of environmentalists miss that. And, you know, it's pretty interesting because you get a few, a few psychologists have said it, and a few sociologists, Lewis Mumford said it, and Eric Fromm said it, and um, 
a few feminists. Um, Mary Daly said it. Um, and that's one of the reasons I became a writer is because I saw that was missing in environmental discourse. And, um, or one of the reasons I, I started writing the stuff I did or do. And that's one of the problems we face is that we can't just say, hmm, so can you please change? And here's why on a, on a rational level, because the problems aren't fundamentally rational. That's like trying to right. stop a pedophile by just talking to them. Right. I know. So where does this leave us? I mean, where this leaves us is people need to find their own ways. They need to find what works for them, and they need to find what the ways they can serve. We get back to it's not – the question is not whether people – believe in militant or non-militant resistance, although that's a desperately important question that you need to ask and I need to ask and a lot of people need to ask and we need to live, some of us. And that's, but the reason I say some of us is because it's like I've got my, this friend, Charlotte Watson, who used to run the Battered Women's Program for the state of New York. You know, she asks every man she sees what will it take for men to stop beating on women. And she's completely relentless. And that's one of the great things about everything being so messed up is no matter where you look, there's fabulous work to be done. So you're doing your important work, and I'm doing my important work. And Charlotte, she doesn't care about salmon, and she doesn't really care about the question of when is violence acceptable, although she did recommend to me the book When Battered Women Kill. So obviously that's an issue she's thought about too. And I don't have a problem with battered women killing their abusers either, you know? Um, And obviously Charlotte didn't either, so she's thought about it in that context. But that's not primarily where her discussion lies. Her Her discussion lies primarily in getting other men to exert social pressure onto men to stop beating. And what she says, what, one of the things it will take is a man saying to another man, I'm not going to play basketball with you because I heard you call your girlfriend a bitch. So as long as you're going to use terms like that, I'm not going to associate with you. And I think that that's really great, and that's her work. And then you've got your work of doing this, of, of chanting it down. And, you know, I've got my work. Mm-hmm. And... We need to have more people having these discussions, and we need to have more people then doing the tangible work of, of, you know, helping to get the dams removed on the Klamath or whatever happens. You know, it's like somebody asked me the other day, I was having this exchange with a person who said, so ask me a question about me. And so the question I asked was, what are you doing to help the land where you live? You know, and that's because that's the question. I'm, I'm far more interested in that question than, you know, what's your favorite movie? Right. Yep. It, it's a much deeper question, and people need to be looking at the deeper issues. It's and people true. need to get off their butts and actually do something, you know? Um, yeah, what is that? I mean, I, I, what is it that people like us are fired up to do our work and, and do something about our situation, and then others couldn't get off the couch, you know, to, to save from total destruction? And I mean, what is it that makes people like you and I and others want to dedicate our lives to you know, the good work, you know? I, I, it's no, like, is it a different strain of human? It almost feels like. I wish I had an answer. I have no idea. I yeah. have no idea. And it's, I find it incredibly frustrating. You know, people can come to one of my talks and they get all excited. And then it's like, so what do you, but what do, you do? That's the question. You know, years and years ago, um, Ward Churchill, uh, I shared the stage with him a few times. And one of the times uh, somebody asked something about how we met. And I interviewed him back in 1992 or something like that. And he said, yeah, we interviewed when Derek, we met when Derek interviewed me, and um, I was not impressed. I looked at him like, oh, God, that's not a very nice thing to say. But he was just setting me up to say a nice thing. And what he said was, 
I wasn't impressed because everybody has ideas, but he did something with them. He's taken them and he's moved on with them. He said, I can't tell you how many students I had were all fired up and they think they're going to go out and change the world. And then, you know, I, I happened to see him 10 years later and they're doing nothing. And then he said that he would have other students who just sort of sloughed their way through class and then he hears back from them 10 years later and they've, they're, they're doing great work. And it's like, how do you predict? How do you know? It's, 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 it's impossible. I mean, I don't know why more people aren't doing this stuff. I don't know why more people aren't doing anything. Well, you know, I've got a story about that that it just breaks my heart, that, that where I live, you know, California, Northern California is known for marijuana. And mm-hmm. we have the Prop 215 stuff, the medical marijuana. And the way it was before, well, the way it is is that every county determines how many plants a person can have. And for a while, Del North, the county where I lived, had it so you can have 99 plants. And for personal medicinal use. And some people thought that was excessive, and so they wanted to lower it. They wanted to lower it down to six. And it was pretty cool because this is how participatory democracy is supposed to work. The night that the supervisors were going to vote on that, everybody packed the place. It was flooded with people who were furious and saying, how could you do this? How could you take away the medicine? How could you? And if they would have lowered it from 99 to six, they would have been killed, you know? This is how participatory democracy is supposed to work, you know, the, the outraged citizens. And mm-hmm. that was great. The problem is that any time we have something about the salmon, six people show up, and it's the same six people, you know? It's like what I wish is that people loved salmon as much as they loved their marijuana. And I don't know. I mean, that's, yeah. if you wanted to start a revolution, take down the Internet, because people would revolt in a heartbeat. But they wouldn't take revolt for the right reason. They'd revolt because they, that's another thing that scares me, as long as we're on the topic of revolt, is that, I think there is going to be revolution in this country, in the United States, but it's not going to come from the good side. It's going to come from the the Tea Party types. It's going to come. They're organized, they are angry, and they are having, they're experiencing extreme, extreme aggrieved entitlement. And I wrote about this in Culture Make-Believe, how when people who are grossly entitled start losing some of those entitlements, they will lash out at everyone around them. And what what we're going to see, and that's another another part of the problem is that um, if is the the way the feds respond to right wing versus left wing resistance that you know the whole Clive and Bundy thing where he's this armed there's all these armed people facing off with BLM people about cattle grazing and um, the the United States back down and we can guarantee that if uh, you know, that would have been a bunch of American Indians or a bunch of African Americans, um, all with, with guns trying to face down and having snipers aimed with guns aimed at, at federal um, officers of the law. Um, the black people and the Indians would have been just massacred. And right. because it was right-wingers, they actually didn't, did not even, they gave him his cows back, for God's sake. And... So I think that there is going to be a revolution in this country. I think it's going to be completely the wrong one. Yeah, the priorities and are all screwed up. They're, they're not. Yeah. Their objectives aren't there. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a that's the thing I see too. Is I see people fighting for the wrong reasons because they yep. they they this, they don't see the big picture, and they they just want this. And, and everybody's stuck in the debates. I see everybody's stuck in the, the small world debates, but not looking at the big picture. And those are the people, the only people that are fired up that are outside of those that see the real truth. And 
Yeah, and if those people could be turned around to see the truth, that would be awesome. But um, a lot of them are pretty hard to talk to, and they have some pretty messed up ideals, it seems. Yeah, I used, to, I used to have more more faith in a sort of left-right alliance. I used to have a lot of faith in that back when I was pretty naive, and then I actually met a fair number of the hardcore right-wing people, and some of them, some of them I think actually can be sympathetic to to issues, but some of them I've met are just overtly racist and misogynist. They're just horrible, horrible, and they're 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 not. I, I don't have a lot of faith in sort of a strong left-right alliance anymore. No, no, I don't see it either. Yep. I, I had a real quick wild card question for you. I just it just came to mind. I thought you were on since you're on. Um, my friend is a beekeeper, and he's been mm-hmm. noticing his bee population, honeybee population, rapidly dying off. Un, un, and what he links it to, and I don't know if you've ever looked into this or covered it at all, is the whole um, chemtrail issue, the whole spraying. Uh, you ever seen that before, where they do that on the, in the uh, geoengineering? Well, I, I think I think we we don't really need to talk about chemtrails to talk about collapse of bee populations because there's just ubiquitous pesticide use and some specific pesticides have been linked to the collapse all over and. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't really thought a lot about chemtrails. I, I, I think pretty much about them the way my agent talks about 9-11, which is we don't actually need to have, I and mean, we don't need to talk about the United States blowing up its own buildings to know that the United States kills its own citizens. It does anyway. And it's the same with right. the chemtrails. So it's not something that I think about very often, in part because we know that this culture is poisoning the planet in every other way already anyway. I mean, and it's, it's not something that I would put past them. They would, of course, they would do that sort of thing. I just, I don't know whether they do, and I don't really think about it. But it's, I don't think we need chemtrails to talk about bee die-offs. And maybe, maybe a factor, but, but honestly, ubiquitous pesticides is, is a sufficient reason for bee collapse. Yeah, and though they are rapidly collapsing, it seems I hear all over the place, yeah. and that's one big link in the undoing of everything else right yeah well derek it's been a pleasure to have you on it um i uh have to have you back sometime and um really appreciate you coming on and your website is derekjensen.org yeah org. and you have a radio show resistance radio i'm sorry what sorry I guess there's a delay on our on one of our sides. I was just saying your your radio show is Resistance Radio. It's Resistance Radio, and it's on the it's on www.prn.fm, and it's on every Sunday, and then they're archived. And then look, okay. once you get the <coughs> excuse me, once you get the PRN, then search for Resistance Radio. Okay, sounds good. And thank you so much. Your questions were fabulous. Oh, thank you, thank you. Yeah, and just like the great questions up. Sometime. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Anytime, man. Uh, take care, brother, and I appreciate you coming on and just sharing sharing all the insight you got because I, I think uh, most people aren't taking a look at what you're taking a look at, and it's uh, real important. So, Well, thank you so much, and, and thank you for your work. Yeah, thank you. Well, have a great day. Enjoy your day, and I'll uh, talk to you again sometime soon. Sounds great. All right, take care. Bye-bye. 
Well, there goes Derek Jensen, who is a important voice for the movement in, in which we need to see. We need to understand the whole picture in which um, this whole way of life on planet Earth is destroying the planet, the people. And, you know, some people look at environmentalism as unconnected or, or away from the the um, scheme of things, but really when it comes down to it, what are we all living on? We're living on planet Earth, and if we treat it without a relationship to it and just use it as an object, then soon enough that will disappear, and that is our future. And so people rarely look at the things that he's talking about. And I, I brought him on because I think civilization is in a very important understanding of this whole way of life. And on this show, we chant it down to the fullest degree. That means that we take the things that are corrupt from the roots and pull them out. And so that's where I got in. That's another reason I brought him on because of a very important issue to look at is how we live on the planet. And this is part one of the civilization system tentacle. I'm going to come back, flesh that out, as well as the uh, system tentacle on authority. And so I like to get all this information out because this is the way we can become free and understand what, who we are and what we need to do. So that was a great interview with Derek Jensen, and um, we will continue on um, this, in this discussion. Other shows upcoming, I'm going to have a show. Um, we're going to go to the movies. We're going we're gonna, to uh, check out movies that chant it down and uh, it just kind of give us a, a, the good, feed us the right ideals to where we need to go. And so uh, if you've been uh, tuning in to the last episodes, it's uh, important that in, when I go back to these discussions that you've heard these first. So, um, Thanks so much for tuning in to Chant It Down Radio. Um, check out the archives. Spread the word. This is a small radio show. It's like uh, as small as it gets. But those out there who enjoy the show and appreciate the work, please let it out there on Facebook or whatever. I don't do that stuff, but you can certainly do that. So take care. And um, until we meet again, keep on chanting it down.
awake now? Wake now.